0: anoint the words of your word, God, that, Lord, you would drive it deep into our hearts. And, Lord, being what this passage is, God, on spiritual warfare, that you would drive far from here, Lord, anything that is not of you, that anything that is of darkness, Lord, may your light shine through today. And may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning concludes our sermon series this summer in Ephesians, and we're essentially going to finish up Ephesians chapter 6, 10, verse, or excuse me, starting with verse 10 up through verse 24. And so the main point this morning, I'm just going to start right out and, and go for it. The main point this morning is this, and, it is, and it's simply this, Christians fight a spiritual battle. Christian's fight, a spiritual battle, battle. And there are four matters of this battle that we gathered here today as God's people must recognize if we're going to some way or some shape or form be sort of halfway victorious at this war. What are those four matters? We're essentially this. Number 1, we are at war. Number 2, God's going to provide the weapons. Number three, God provides the strategy. And number four, prayer is the battleground where the war is won. And so firstly, we as Christians must recognize that there actually is a war going on, that spiritual warfare is actually real and that attacks are coming. Say, well, what do you mean? Well, join with me if you've got your Bible open in verse, beginning with verse 10 of chapter six, Paul writing as the words that Paul uh, read a second ago, he says, finally, And so friends, I, anytime we began to talk about a passage like this or a passage is introduced, I always get it. I, in fact, I made an announcement yesterday on Facebook that I was finishing up this sermon series and behold, in the middle of the night, somebody said, I want to talk to you about this. And so it really is. So, and I always get to questions. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe this spiritual warfare thing is real? And so I just want to take a little bit of time just morning to address the question. Why do some people struggle with whether or not spiritual warfare is real? Catholic scholar and theologian Peter Kreft says this. People wrestle with this concept. It's because people do not have clear categories for what is good, for what is evil, for what is right, and for what is wrong. Andrew Delbanco, a secular scholar at Columbia University, he recognized the same problem as Kreft. He comes at it from a little different perspective, though. He says this. He says, a great gulf has opened up and our culture between the visibility of evil and then the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And so why does this gulf exist? Why is it so hard to come to to believe in in a world where spiritual warfare actually exists? Well, this gulf opens up essentially when people begin to question or reject the idea that there are objective moral values in the world that there are moral absolutes in the world. Moral absolutes meaning that there are absolute standards, ontologically so, in this world, just because of the way the world is that determine what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, what is evil and what is good. And for lots of reasons in our culture, many people have resolved in their own minds to reject moral absolutes. And it's not always a bad motive in that. I believe most are looking for positive outcomes, actually, to relieve tension between uh, seeming conflicts or between conflicts. I've even heard some people say, well, you know, if we could just get rid of everybody's dogmatism, we could put it into war. We could all have peace. say, well, what do you mean? Well, okay, let me ask you this. What are fights usually about? What are fights usually about? The book of James tells us a little bit about that. But it's normally about what is perceived to be right and what is perceived to be wrong. Well, where you've got an apparent contradiction, both can't be right, right? So the thinking goes kind of like this. If If there were or if there are no absolute right and wrongs in the world, if there is no good or evil, then there's nothing to really fight about. Worldwide peace is a shoe-in, and we can just all hang out in the fuzzy, gray, in-between areas happily ever after with no tensions whatsoever to reconcile. But it goes further. See, if it follows that if there is nothing to fight about on this physical earth, there is no spiritual warfare either. Satan is reduced to the red cartoon character with horns and pitchfork and a pointy tail that we all seem that sometimes kind of causes us to do bad things, but really nobody takes him seriously. How many of you remember the old Saturday Night Live skits with the devil where he would come in and just kind of make fun and make light of the situation? That's exactly the point. It's to pull the wool over so nobody sees it coming. But however, friends, if there is no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong and no such thing as spiritual warfare and there is no Satan, then there's no such thing as sin. And if there's no such thing as sin, then there's no such thing as righteousness. And therefore, there's no need of a savior, Jesus Christ. Truth is all somewhere in between the lines if you can figure it out. And so can you, can you begin to see the connecting of the dots that there, and how the whole system collapses if we remove the idea that there are things in this world which are absolutely right and absolutely wrong, things that are moral and immoral. Noting this problem, Peter Kreft goes on to state, he says, the power of positive thinking about pretty much everything nowadays has blinded us to the power of negative thinking. And it's led to a cult of unthinking openness and equally unthinking rejection of any type of discrimination whatsoever. He goes on to say, rhetorically, he said, Should we be open to the forces of life and the forces of death alike? Or should we, our mind be open to falsehood equally with truth? Well, of course we would say no to that. And I could go on with philosophical wranglings and on and on and on and on. But, beloved, listen, we all know evil when we see it, right? We may not be able to say exactly what it is. We may not be able to exactly label the causality of it. But most of us know it when we see it. In 1933, despite reports, people in this country paid very little attention to Hitler and Nazi Germany. Until the evidence became so overwhelming that people could no longer deny it. And it was said that President Teddy Roosevelt admittedly, in his own regard, had no category to describe the Holocaust of World War II until he read theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who helped him understand the categories, get this, of sin and righteousness and good and evil. And beloved, our country seems to struggle with that right now today. It seems that we struggle to categorize and name what is behind the slaughter of thousands of innocent Christians by ISIS in the Middle East. This country seems confused with all sorts of ifs, ands, and buts when faced with the idea that a government-funded group is trafficking baby parts. Or when someone walks into a movie theater and opens fire on the moviegoers, or someone comes up and shoots two reporters on camera, our society struggles with what to say. They go looking for every cause, quoting stats, blaming the assailant's home life, or somehow think that better counseling, medication management, money, education, or gun control could prevent the situation. God forbid it that someone used the theological word evil. To call it what it is or put it on Satan or blame his demons to ever talk about these situations. Why? Well, I guess it's, maybe it just doesn't fit with the academy or something to talk about these evil forces. I don't know. But, beloved, I do know this. There is a war going on. Why? Because the very existence of evil that each and every one of us experience in life and see playing out before us on our TVs and the news and the newspaper are excruciating proof that there is a war. Evil is real. Spiritual warfare is real. As Peter Kreff continues to note, he says, The whole reason... Get this, or that spiritual warfare is very much real. He says the entire reason, the whole reason, for the most important event in human history, i.e. the incarnation of Jesus Christ, was about spiritual warfare. It was God's invasion of enemy-occupied territory to redeem his children captive to the forces of evil. He goes on to say that Christmas Day was God's D-Day. So friend, my question is for you this morning, if evil is not real for you, if warfare is not a reality for you, then why bother with Jesus? Why bother? But beloved, since there is a battle, what is the battle about? Who is it that's fighting against God's people and what can we do? The same forces of evil, the world, that is the system that began after the fall not God's original created order the world the flesh the devil all those forces that crucified Jesus are as equally upset over the victory of Christ in his resurrection friends they are panicked by the gospel of Jesus Christ why because the gospel of Jesus Christ conquers death for God's people They're panicked by the gospel because the gospel challenges the powers and authorities of evil that are. The gospel of Jesus Christ panics them because it creates a new community, the church, who are loyal subjects of King Jesus, who will say that Jesus is Lord, meaning there are no other lords. There are no other supreme powers in the world. The gospel of Jesus unifies. We saw that in Ephesians chapter two. It can, it's the only thing in the world that can unite separated things into one, Jew, Gentile, black, white, people on completely opposite side of the aisles. The gospel is the only thing in the world that has the power to do that. The gospel also creates a new humanity created for good works. That means that God's people, you, me, others, we're out, we're working in the world, we're doing our best to redeem what's been put under our purview to put the world to rights. To put the world to rights in terms of our personal lives, our family, our work, our culture. But then lastly, the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's sovereign power in the universe and it also points to these evil forces, or points out to these evil forces, your imminent destruction has happened. You have no power. So therefore, these evil forces do what they can do. They do all they can to oppose the gospel by making war and attacking God's people. And they use several tactics, several means of attack. Number one, there's one, and I kind of coined this or made up this term along the way. It's, it's kind of what I call depression-distraction combo. It seems to be one of the more popular ones today. So, and I'm not talking about clinical depression, okay? Not th- those sorts, but just depression-distraction combo. It's really when we're so despondent and feeling so dejected that we have side, sad feelings and low spirit, and it just makes us extremely vulnerable and so easily distracted that Satan just has an open shot at us. It blows us, a depression, distraction kind of blows Christians off track of the gospel. It makes us susceptible to things like false teaching, to lies, untruths, temptations, anger, immorality, or worse yet, an unbalanced gospel. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, listen, good feelings, good feelings are easy to sell in the church these days. I mean, the market's wide open for that, and it's often pretty luring, I got to tell you. But listen, beloved, if all we feed ourselves, if, all, if we only feed ourselves sermons and hymns about how great I am, <laughs> that there's none like me, or it's all about me, but our sinful attitudes and behaviors are not challenged, we only have part of the gospel, not the full counsel of God. When we are called to self-examination like we were in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, And sometimes our response is like, nope, not going to do it. Those things, Lord, you're asking me to put off and put on, not going to do it, not going there, Jesus. As Tim Keller, our father who art in Manhattan, so excellently puts it, he says, what is most destructive in our lives is what we are most defensive about. Beloved, the gospel calls us to transformation, not just affirmation, to get us out of our funk. If it was just about that, God's been reduced to therapeutic deism. He's become our counselor, not our Lord. But sometimes they're just outright frontal attacks. And those are pretty obvious when they happen. They're attacks from the government, authorities, or institutions, or cities trying to prevent the gospel from spreading. And i got to tell you, a few weeks ago I was reading about this. And, and, and it's just a reality. If, there was some, if some people had their way in the United States right now, the church would lose her 5013C status and be taxed like a business. <laughs> Why? It's to stomp the church out. That's what it's about. It's to shut her up. <laughs> Last time I checked, when we looked at the books, this is not a money-making <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> I really don't know what the plan is there. Other... You know, at the end of the year, yeah, you can tax us on our, what, $1,500 overage, you know? I mean, we really seek to to really spend well what God's given us here to see that ministry go farther. Well, God bless you if you get 33% of $1,500. I mean, I'm just saying, why tax the church? But then there are oblique tax. These kind of come from the side, persuading Christians to invest time and energy into all sorts of irrelevant side issues. That's like when you have the fight over the color of the carpet and the church. It's when we are involved in ministry and we lose focus and we get focused on the how to the exclusion of the what. But then too, it can just be plain old temptations that come at us. The big three, power, You know, I want to be the decider in the world, money, which is greed, and then sex. And so, friends, the spiritual battle is real. But where it gets down to kind of a personal level with us this morning, and even in this text, I'm often surprised at how people can quickly become raging enemies at one another, but yet fail to see who the real enemy is. Beloved, listen, the battle is not against people. Or your brother or your sisters in Christ sitting next to you. Ephesians 6.12 is clear on that. Paul said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, friends, yes, we are at war, but make no mistake, do not go to war or take it out on your fellow sisters and brothers in the process. They are not your enemy, the people sitting on your left and right. To do that is really to fall into the hand of the enemy. And in a sense, if it was true wartime language, it would actually, actually be a thing of treason. Where you'd have to be asked the question, well, whose side are you on? So what do we do as Christians? This war thing, the warfare thing is real. Well, our passage today is not about offense as much as it is about Defense. And a part of the defense is that, and this is point number two, Christians must also recognize that God provides us with the weapons that we need, the armor of God. Ephesians 6.13, he says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So what is the armor of God we are to put on? Well, number one, he tells us the belt of truth. Now, I'm not going to go back and read these verses individually, but that's uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. The belt of truth. Well, what is that? Well, it's the true message of Jesus Christ. It's that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to earth as Messiah to achieve the long-awaited victory over sin, evil, and death, to rescue his people, to assume the throne as ruler and Lord of all, and began setting up the kingdom of God. Just like this little outpost here today called Christ Church. And friends, that's good news. And beloved, the gospel is not true. The belt of truth, the gospel is not true because it works. It works because it's true. So Paul calls it the belt of truth because, like a belt, you would put on. It holds everything else together, and so you put on the gospel is what ta- was. Excuse me, what Paul is telling us. Well, second, the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness here meaning uh, a person being righteous or righteous in this context, or the righteousness meaning uh, or is referring to one who is fair and equitable in dealing out justice among all people. Okay? Listen, God is the one true God and one true judge who intends to put the whole world to rights. And so putting the world to rights started when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And by his life, he vindicated each and every one of us, meaning that Jesus has cleared us of all sin, blame, guilt, and suspicion, get this, making us righteous in the sight of God. And so friends, God being the one, not anyone else, who is 100% true justice, who gets it right, and we being already in the right because of the works of Jesus Christ, we being already in the right with God, it's like a breastplate protecting us against frontal attacks of guilt and condemnation when the enemy accuses us. So Paul says, put on the righteousness of Christ. Well, second, put on the shoes, i.e. the gospel of peace. What's that talking about? Well, beloved, there's going to be times when the enemy will do what he can to knock us off our feet. cause strife between God's people. Stir even God's people up between themselves up to war. What Paul is saying, be ready to run to make peace. And remember, again, from Ephesians 2, that the gospel is the only thing that can give true unity and peace between two people. That's why we pass the peace here in a few moments at this service. Well, next he says the shield of faith. Beloved, listen, arrows in the form of doubt, despair, adversity, trying circumstances, personal tragedy, triumph even, and all such, sorts of temptations that will tempt us toward becoming arrogant or prideful or greedy or envious or wrathful, sloth, lust, gluttony, they're all going to come your way. I mean, we're just, none of us are above that. We don't live in a bubble. Pick up the shield of faith. I know this past summer, some of you are well familiar with this. We had, a little, we had an incident with our son, and i got to be honest with you, that kind of knocked the air out of my cells. And found myself, not really questioning God, but just kind of like, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? What, what, what's going on? And a special person came to visit us. In the midst of the conversation, her words were like a shield thrown up that absorbed all sorts of flaming arrows that were hitting me and my wife. And she simply said this, the enemy has no place or power in this. And immediately, the burning arrows stopped. Our faith needed to hear those words in the midst of that. And friend, that's exactly what the shield of faith is meant to do, is to come up and to catch those flaming arrows that the enemy is gonna launch at you. Next, the helmet of salvation. Listen, knowing that you belong to the family of God and that you are his beloved son or daughter and that nothing, listen, nothing, not even death itself can separate you from his love gives us assurance of being saved and secure when facing secondary enemies. And let me ask you this morning, you got a hard situation in life? Not to be flippant, but let me ask you, but ask yourself, what's the worst they can do? Well, they could kill me, I guess. Well, friend, I guess they can try. But friend, though they may slay me or slay you, because of Jesus, you'll live forever. You're saved. You have the helmet of salvation. All right, and so finally, And last, you pick up your weapon of offense. If there is an offensive weapon to use to offense, if it could be called that, and that's the sword of the spirit, which is none other than the word of God, the sacred scriptures. Each time in the passage I read a minute ago that Jesus was tempted in the gospel passage, what does he say? It is written. He didn't say, well, actually Satan, and then go into some, philosophical debate or diatribe or something along those lines? No. He used the written revelation of God because he knew it would drive back the enemy. Why? The enemy hates truth. And the enemy hates light, lest the evil be exposed. And so God uses the word to accomplish, also, excuse me, and God also uses the word to accomplish his cleaning work of our hearts and the cleaning work in our lives. He uses that to cut us free from the entanglements of sin. That's why it's called a sword. And that's why we preach the Bible here at Christ Church. And so that's the full armor of God. What are these weapons for? What are we supposed to do with them exactly? Okay, we put all this stuff on. Listen, it's not for offense. But number three, God gives us the battle strategy. God gives us the battle strategy. We have these, what? We know the war is real. We've got the armor of God. Now he gives us the battle strategy, and it's what? It's to stand. That's what verse 614 tells us. The armor of God is designed to and for standing, to make a stand or hold ground. Stand is mentioned some four times in in a couple of verses there. And so, okay, we stand. What does that mean? Well, the image that kind of came to mind to me about this for defensive standing was happened one time or the the kind of thing that I could, or let me back this up. The image that came to mind about defensive standing, it's kind of like this. A a friend of ours one day was helping us at a little sawmill that we have on our property and a log got away off the pile, unbeknownst to us. And the next thing I know, I mean, here comes this massive tumbling thing. And I mean, this is, this is a big, big log. Okay. And if it hits anything, it's going to destroy it or it's going to hurt somebody. Um, One of our friends who was there knew exactly what to do, grabbed up one of the tools you used to roll logs with, runs up, all of a sudden socks this thing into the log. And though the force of it was so much, he actually stopped it from turning. And this is a beast of a man. It slid him back about three feet. That's what it means to stand. Listen, attacks are going to come rolling our way, but the battle is the Lord's, it's not ours And the Lord calls us not to fight on offense, but hold our ground and stand. Not to go on the offense, but stand. And beloved, it may take tremendous force to hold the line sometimes. It may, even like our friend, it may push the church back a little bit. But nevertheless, God does not call us to go on the offense. He calls us to stand. So beloved, we're at war. We have the weapons of God We are called to stand, but lastly, prayer is the battleground where the war is won. Ephesians 6, 18, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making making supplication for all the saints. When we began Ephesians, we saw where Ephesians began with what? Prayer. And now as Paul comes to the end, it's like he puts up a bookend, and he closes with what? Prayer. And friends, i got to tell you, this is one of the reasons why I love, love being an Anglican. Because you know why? We have a whole book devoted to prayer. <laughs> it's called the Book of Common Prayer. And it pretty much gives us precise instructions of how to win the spiritual battle. Well, now, whenever I say that, and I know there's, you know, there's a lot of people that, well, wait a minute, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. The, don't you mean the Bible? Yes. In fact, I had a seminary professor really push back on this. He's like, you've already got the prayer book. You, you, you've already got that. You've got the scriptures. You don't need this. Okay. I always ask somebody when they tell me that, are you currently praying the scriptures? And I trust that you've read this, because if you have, you'll find out it's at least 90% scripture. And it's even been organized in a really cool form for you. So, beloved, we have a book, two books, actually, this one being supreme and this one here, that will help us win the spiritual battle. We have in Anglicanism what's called Lex Veronde, Lex Credende, and I would add to that Lex Vivende, which translates, the law of prayer is the law of belief, which is the law of the way we live. In other words, what we pray is what we believe and what we live out. We don't have to make our prayers up. You don't have to be a super apostle. You don't have to be a priest in the Anglican church. You don't have to be a super Christian. You just got to have faith to take the scriptures in one hand, And maybe perhaps the the book of common prayer and the other on your knees. And friends, that will go a long way toward winning the spiritual battle. Beloved of God, we are at spiritual war. Attacks are coming. God provides us with the weapons we need, the full armor of God. God provides the strategy, and that is to stand firm, not to go on the offensive. And prayer is the battleground where the war is won. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.